You're listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Today we're talking to a cannabis doctor about a number of things, cancer, opioids, pain, and sexuality. Joining us is Dr. Jordan Tischler, who's been on the program before. He's a graduate of Harvard Medical School, trained in internal medicine, was an emergency physician, but now has a medical consulting practice in Boston, Massachusetts. His website is inhalemd.com. Dr. Tischler, good to talk to you again. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Now, if I went in to see a doctor to tell him or her about a specific problem I was having, it would likely be suggested I have some tests, and then the doctor would rebook an appointment once those test results were completed, or based on the doctor's experience, an initial assessment of the problem would be done, and I would likely be prescribed medication. Now, how do you deal with patients who come to see you? Well, um, you know, the first thing is that lots of people approach me, um, or my office, I should say. Um, and so we always kind of, uh, get some general information up front. But then the next thing that happens is that we ask them to provide us with medical records that address what's going on with them and why they're seeking cannabis care. Um, you know, and I think that that's a very important step, uh, for a number of reasons, but really from sort of a purely medical point of view, if if I'm to take appropriate and good care of somebody, I really have to understand what's going on with them. You know, not just uh, I want cannabis for X, Y, and Z, but really, um, you know, that holistic picture of what else is is really going on here. Uh, not. Uh, you know, there are certainly instances when cannabis isn't an appropriate medicine, but there are other uh, aspects of it where cannabis, you know, certain ways of using cannabis may or may not be so totally appropriate. So um, my review of those records is really an important part of my getting up to speed with people's health care. Um, and then from there, uh, we would have the patient come in and meet with me. I spend an hour. We talk about the medical problems and what we think we can do with the cannabis and how do you um, use the cannabis in, in the best way for that patient's particular illness. Uh, I spend a lot of time actually educating the patient about different types of products that are out there, some which I think are more beneficial than others, in large measure because when they go to the dispensary, they're really kind of at the mercy of the dispensary agent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and when we think about conventional medications, when a doctor writes a prescription, it says, I want them to use this medicine this much and this often, and it's, it has a limit on it. And I think that we as patients often think that those limits are really being imposed on us as, as the patient. But in reality, the issue has much more to do with controlling the seller 
and making sure that they don't strong arm the patient into buying more or different from what it is that's been recommended by their physician. Uh, and that's sort of a, a protection right now that's sorely lacking in, in the cannabis industry. And boy, you just got me on my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Tischler, did you have patients come to you who are reluctant to use cannabis but may be brought in by me- another member of the family? Oh, sure. You know, the couple things that I, I hear frequently, and this is typically from my older patients, uh, is, you know, Doc, give me the kind of cannabis that doesn't get you high. And unfortunately, you know, that's uh, in many situations not really a reality. And the way I look at the intoxication is that it's a side effect that we need to manage in the context of their treatment. Uh, and the other thing I get is, um, well, we would like to consider medical cannabis, but we don't want to smoke. And, you know, my response to that is I never recommend that anybody smoke. I think that, you know, smoking is probably not a very good thing for your lungs. Uh, the data on this don't necessarily support that, but the data aren't very long. And so that leaves open some questions. Uh, but what I tell people is, just because we don't want to smoke doesn't mean that inhalation, particularly by vaporization, isn't, you know, an appropriate way of doing this. They safeguards your lungs, but provides you with certain benefits uh, that you can't get through oral or other routes of administration. Dr. Tischler, let's talk about cancer for uh, a bit here, because it's estimated that more than 8 million people die worldwide from cancer each year. And the so-called war on cancer has been a complete and utter failure. And I would suggest that we're probably no farther ahead in 2017 than we were 40 years ago, with one exception, and that's the use of cannabis. Give me your thoughts on cancer and cannabis. Well, um, you know, you loaded that question big time. Um, I think that your your initial statements about not being any further along than we were 40 years ago uh, is something that uh, is, is I don't think I could agree to that. I think that we have significant uh, uh, improvements in conventional care. But you're asking me about cannabis, and I think that you know we should focus on that. Um, when it, you know cannabis for anti-cancer treatment is uh, totally hypothetical uh, or theoretical, we know that there are um, certain strains that kill cancer in the test tube. Um, there have been some experiments in mice where we, um, you know, give mice the tumor, uh, and then give them, uh, some sort of a cannabis preparation. And we can, in fact, kill off the tumor in that mice, in that mouse without, uh, killing the mouse, of course. Uh, so that's very promising. We call these sort of preclinical studies. And, and, you know, what we don't have is really specifics on, um, what is doing the job. Um, we don't have specifics on which kinds of cancer are affected. And, and it's worth our taking a moment to notice that, you know, cancer isn't one thing. Uh, every cancer is different uh, in the sense that colon cancer is different from prostate cancer, is different from breast cancer, is different from lymphoma. Because the genetic mutations that create these things, as well as the tissue of origin, are just completely different. And even within 
cancers, there are different subtypes. And we know now, uh, what we didn't know 10, 20 years ago, that even breast cancer isn't just one thing, that there are certain breast cancers that, um, you know, express certain receptors uh, for hormones that other breast cancers do not. And our ability to treat them with conventional medications depends upon what sorts in micro uh, classifications those are. Uh, so, you know, when we stop to think about how cannabis plays a role in this, there's some really exciting stuff coming out of out of Israel. There's a guy there named um, Dr. David Mary, M-E-I-R-E-I. I got a chance to hear him give a lecture at the CanMed conference here in Boston um, about a month ago. And the stuff he's doing is really brilliant because what he's done is he's figured out that um, not every strain kills every cancer. And so he started to look at what the differences are. And I think one of the sort of obvious interesting bits is that since almost every strain of, ca- of cannabis has CBD and THC in it, if something is different, then it has to be not those things, right? So he's developed a machine that can look at the many, many cannabinoids and and hundreds of terpenes that are involved in these strains and start to kind of compare which ones are doing what. And I think we're going to make a lot of mileage out of that. But again, we're still doing this in at the level of the Petri dish. So you might ask me, you know, like, all right, so what do you do when the patient comes in and, um, and says, okay, doc, I've got this cancer and I really want to treat the cancer. Uh, you know, what do we do? That was my next uh, question. <laughs> good. Excellent. Uh, you know, so one of the things I do with these folks is I sit them down and I really kind of try to dissect, you know, there's treatment of the symptoms, either the symptoms of the cancer, like bone pain, if you have bony metastases or, symptoms related to the treatment of the cancer, the conventional treatments like nausea and vomiting or or those sorts of things. Um, And I think that those things are wildly amenable to treatment with with cannabis. And so I think that, you know, that's almost a given um, and we'll pursue that. But then what they are often asking me is, um, you know, can we, you know, make my cancer go away? And, um, you know, to try and give them a realistic explanation or response to that, you know, I I say a lot of what I've just said to you about the studies that we do have and what we don't have. The nice thing, however, about cannabis is that it's so non-toxic that there's not a lot of reason not to pursue it. And certainly there are some extreme cases where that's, that may be the case. But in, in most cases, you know, this is such a safe medicine that sort of what I do with them is I strike a deal. I say, look, you know, we're going to take this journey together. And um, what I think is that you should do everything that you can so that we can have the best outcome. And that, in my mind, includes all of the conventional treatment that you can uh, take advantage of, as well as adding in cannabis as an additional cancer-fighting agent. And I think, you know, honestly, that's the best approach that I can uh, recommend to people because while we have this sort of beginning information about cannabis as an anti-tumor agent, we're really not in a position to say, look, we can compare cannabis as a regimen to this conventional stuff and you know this is how it fares we're just not there yet so um thankfully as i said cannabis is so non-toxic 
that we can add it with, with a fair amount of, um, safety, uh, and not worry too much. And so that's kind of the, the approach that I take with patients. Dr. Tishler, the last time we talked to you, you mentioned that you do not sell product. When you recommend the use of cannabis to a patient, where do they purchase it? Where do they get it? Well, you know, every state has a different approach to this, which is one of the unfortunate things about this being rolled out state by state. Um, But here in Massachusetts, we have these vertically integrated dispensaries. And so what that means is that the dispensaries are responsible for everything from the seed to the sale. So they grow the plants, they cure the plants, they process the plants, they make their edibles and whatever products from the plants, and then they also run the storefronts. And um, so at least here in Massachusetts, we now have 11 dispensaries, which is much better than we had two years ago. Um, and uh, that's where patients go to get their medicine. And the various dispensaries also have um, their because they make everything themselves. All of the dispensaries have different products. And then it becomes a little bit of a um, an exercise for me to figure out which dispensary has the best appropriate product for the patient in many instances where we're talking about treating something uh that's sort of simpler like um anxiety and depression which i would typically treat with inhaled um uh flour then you know there's not so much to recommend one dispensary over another um when we get into some of this cancer discussion it becomes a little trickier to find the right sort of um availability of cbd and thc and that sort of thing and i have to look more carefully at the at the products that are available I want to switch topics from cancer to opioids. We had a conversation a couple of days ago with a U.S. veteran who was in Afghanistan for 12 months. And the Veterans Administration in the United States prescribes him 9,828 pills. Oh, is this the Smarties guy? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That was brilliant. And uh, we talked to him uh, a couple of days ago. And he went to Colorado, and he tried cannabis, and he just started to feel normal again. But he lives in Missouri, a Uh state which cannabis is illegal, and he is still required to take his, uh, his 27 pills a day. And he's fighting for uh, legality. Yeah, so he can have access. Yeah. He has to take the opioids, but he hates taking them. Tell me about how you deal with opioids. Uh, I guess, is it, would you describe it as an opioid addiction that people have? Well, you know, uh, look, let me start by saying this. I've spent 15 years working as an emergency room physician for the VA. So I have a pretty good handle on what is and isn't the case in the VA. Um, and we really, I think, need to back off the bashing of the VA for its treatment of veterans. The VA is dramatically underfunded. Um, this country makes more veterans than it take cares to take care of. And until we sort of put our money where our mouth is, the VA is only going to be able to do what it can do. Yeah, I don't, top- I, I don't want to suggest that the VA is the problem because they're in uh, a catch-22 position where it is That's- illegal federally and, and there's nothing they can do. That's right. And I think that, you know, um, I have talked with the powers that be at the VA in the region where I work, 
they just get anxious when I start to talk to them about cannabis. It's not that they don't have interest in either cannabis or taking good care of veterans. It's simply that their hands are tied in a way that makes it just a, a non-conversation. And that's very unfortunate. Um, and it's part of the reason why I set up my practice as a private practice so that I was not constrained by those sorts of issues and so that I could then take care of veterans outside of that system and frankly take care of non-veterans outside of all of the large hospitals which are sort of similarly hamstrung by the fact that they get federal uh, support. You know, most large academic hospitals run almost entirely on the support of the federal government uh, between Medicare and Medicaid payments and then uh, NIH grants and um, and residency support and all those sorts of things. So there's a huge amount of money there uh, that makes it all run. Uh, so they're, they're really hands are tied also. Um, so, you know, my point of, of view on opiates has always been, I mean, long, long, long time ago, has been, look, these are a necessary group of medications in certain circumstances, but that I have always been a kind of stingy bastard about them because I've always seen how harmful they can be. And, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, there was a big move that we were under treating pain and that there was this big thing about how pain was going to become the fifth vital sign and that every patient who came in had to be interviewed for their level of pain and they all had to have an exit interview in which it was asked whether the doctor had adequately addressed their pain and all this stuff was really kind of pushing us towards giving more opiates, um, and, uh, and, and you can see where this all led us, right? I mean, and I looked at that and I said, you know what, you can ask all the questions you want, but that's not going to make me give people in opiates inappropriately. And I caught a lot of flack for that. And, and thankfully, 10 years later, I seem to be somewhat vindicated. Um, you know, whether people become addicted to opioids, you know, depends on a number of factors, like what are they taking? How much are they taking? How long are they taking it? I'm sure that some of it has to do with, you know, personal biological makeup. But, you know, what we do know is that opiates can be very dependence forming. Um, the numbers about 21 to 23% of people who use it will become dependent on it, by which I mean, you know, if they stop, they'll have withdrawal symptoms. And, you know, when you compare that against cannabis, which the current understanding is sort of seven to nine percent may develop a problem, you can see that that's that's a vast difference. Um, and that's just based on the likelihood of a problem. It's always also important then to ask what are the consequences of that problem so that if you have cannabis withdrawal, you're usually talking about three to seven days of insomnia and mood instability and sort of just general crankiness um, as compared with withdrawal from opiates, which tends to be you know fairly protracted uh, with diffuse sweating and pain and nausea and vomiting and sort of generally wishing that you were dead. Uh, um, so, I, you know, when you look at the consequences like that, it's it's not a tough calculus in my mind to say, geez, cannabis looks a lot safer. And then when you compare the efficacy of cannabis versus opiates for pain control, you find that they're absolutely equivalent. Well, now if you have two drugs that are absolutely equivalent, neither is better than the other, but one is much safer than the other, well, which one are you going to choose? 
So that's kind of my, my feeling, um, uh, about cannabis and, and that, you know, I think it is only a matter of time before we, we go from thinking opiates are sort of first or second line therapy, uh, and cannabis is the therapy of last resort. Uh, to thinking the cannabis is right is you know at the top and the opiates are at the bottom and I think that would be appropriate. I'd like to see that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dr. Tischler, is cannabis the the efficacy of cannabis taught in medical schools today anywhere that you're aware of? I think that there are one or two medical schools uh, that have sort of made a big deal out of trying to weave this into their curriculum, uh, but I couldn't tell you which they are. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that I have gone to my alma mater, that being Harvard Medical School, to try to, to teach some of this stuff, and I have not been met with a lot of enthusiasm, uh, and that's sort of unfortunate. Um, and so it looks at least at the moment like I am not going to be able to get my foot in that door. So my next step, um, because, you know, thankfully medical school isn't the end of the discussion, will be to try and talk with um, some of the residency programs where people are a little bit further along and may have more specific interest in this sort of thing, and to host, you know, some residents at the practice uh, doing sort of a, like a, a one-month elective rotation and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think the problem that uh, Harvard doesn't want to uh, have cannabis discussed as part of its curriculum is because it receives funding, does it not, from the pharmaceutical industry? I really have no idea what funding they receive from the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you know, so I, I don't think I can really address that question. I think that at least in terms of the folks there that I spoke to, uh, I, I think that the response I got was much more, um, well, you know, we find this interesting and maybe we should talk about it, but there just didn't seem to be a great understanding of any urgency. I didn't feel like that they were not interested. I think, you know, or not willing. I think they were just not pressed. Right. They just didn't see this as an issue worth taking on at the moment. And I, and, and it may very well be that that's, only going to change as we start to practice more cannabis medicine and people coming through those systems start to see that this is um, an important part of medical practice. And at that point, the, you know, the pressure to, to kind of bring it in to the earlier didactic stuff will flow. The old phrase, educate, motivate and agitate. Uh, that's that's what we have to do. I want to talk to you in in the well, the ten minutes that we have left. In your practice, you deal with sexuality. Tell us about Absolutely. that. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, because of the way we've all come into this cannabis medicine thing, uh, which has all been through these very dire illnesses that absolutely need access to cannabis like ALS and MS and cancer as we've talked about in pain control um, you know it's it's uh, very easy to forget that that the whole being is important 
you know, and, and just this week I was sitting with a, an MS patient who has very advanced disease and we, we were talking about not just her MS, but the fact that her MS has a dramatic effect on her sex life. And, you know, as somebody who is surviving with MS, this is a big deal for her. You know, it's not just about controlling pain. It's about having a life worth living. And, you know, for her and her with her illness, this is a bit of an extreme case. But there are, uh, you know, millions of Americans, both male and female, for whom sexuality isn't what they want it to be. They're not having, uh, they have low libido, they have difficulty achieving orgasm, uh, they have um, um, difficulty with sort of the connectedness, that satisfaction that goes along with the intimacy and the orgasms. And the interesting bit about all this is that there are very few, if any, drugs that that can deal with this. I mean, really, the only drug we have for human sexuality at this point are the Viagra-type drugs, which do nothing for women. And frankly, even for men, they help with one problem, which is the erectile dysfunction, but they really don't address any of this sort of uh, sort of above the neck stuff, which is the libido and the connectedness and that sort of thing. So we're really sadly lacking with, on interventions to help people, you know, and part of that, of course, is because we have a weird view of sexuality in the United States and we don't talk about it. Uh, less than a third of women who have issues around sexuality will ever ever bring it up with a with a provider and and for men it's even less than 25 percent and this is despite the fact that we've found that it's not that the providers are not interested or willing to discuss it uh it's just that we all have this kind of weird attitude about it so finally we've got this substance cannabis that's been shown to help both men and women equally um, with slight differences in the way you use it. Um, but it helps not just with sort of one aspect of it, uh, like the erectile dysfunction drugs do, but really um, helps across the board. It helps with the libido. It helps with uh, arousal, which in men is the erection, and the women it's relaxation and lubrication. It helps to accentuate uh, orgasms uh, and give greater intensity and frequency for women. Um, and then I think, you know, just from my point of view, the most important part is it really seems to increase that sense of satisfaction and connectedness that's so important, uh, you know, in, in not just a solo situation but in uh, the relationship context that um, is particularly important uh, as people age and uh, want to maintain uh, sexual function and sexual connectedness and that's something you know we see that wanes over time so cannabis is really brilliant for that sort of thing I can hear people uh, listening to this saying ask him about which strains to use <laughs> ask him about which strains to use <laughs> okay um, but you're going to get the, the wrong answer from me which is that I don't think strains are all that important um, and that I think that using cannabis uh, of any strain uh, in the context of sexuality and in the context of the foreplay 
that's really where where things get special. And the, the strains, some people prefer their sort of sativa stuff because it it's sort of a little bit more energizing. Some people uh, prefer their, their indicas because it causes, you know, promotes more relaxation. I think part of the answer to that question also depends on why we're using this cannabis in the context of sexuality. Some people are looking for uh, sort of new ways to broaden their sexual horizons. Other people are coming to this from the point of view of sex is difficult because they're having pain or that they have um, some psychological uh, fears or those sorts of things. And so strain may become, more, you know, choice may become more relevant in those contexts. Uh, I think that when we start to look at things that really make a difference, I think that um, you know there are a lot of sexuality type products out there now that are gaining traction. Things that are topically applied to the genitalia, and while those certainly can provide some benefit, I remind people that most of the benefit really deals with what's going on above the neck and not down there. And as a result, things you apply down there just aren't going to really have the effect that we're looking for. So um, I, I typically suggest that people inhale and use this in in the context of their relationship so that it is a, a part of the sexual process. I think that um, orals can be effective, but they're so unpredictable, and especially if you're having sex with a partner, you know, you might have uh, the same gummy bearer at the same time, and they want it for one person, it hits at a very different time than another. And I think that that just can kind of throw things off and it, and it and undermines some of the ability to share in the experience of, of taking the cannabis together and having it kind of come on together and, and really kind of build that foreplay. I think you make a very good point that uh, sexual activity is really driven above the neck as opposed, as opposed to um, – I, I mean, your, your brain is essentially what creates the arousal, and uh, cannabis can help in that regard. When you compare that to alcohol, I mean, my <laughs> God, jeez, <laughs> there's, no, there's no comparison, is there? Well, you know, the old expression, I, I believe, actually, it's Shakespeare who said, you know, it, it maketh the, in, the interest, but taketh away the, the, the performance, or I'm not, I've got that wrong, but I mean, the point is alcohol has long been known to make people horny and then just kind of fall flat uh, in, the, in the actual getting it on. Uh, on top of that, we know that, you know, alcohol intoxication, at least sort of at its extremes, tends to make people take, uh, make bad decisions. They make bad decisions about who they want to, to sleep with, the old beer goggles thing, and, um, and then they tend to also take risks with sexuality that they wouldn't if they were sober, like, you know, not using the condom and stuff like that. And we've seen some reports that, that cannabis in certain circumstances can promote similar sorts of decision making, but it's never to the same level. And frankly speaking, when we're talking about using cannabis in the context of at least sort of mature sexual relationships, uh, I'm talking about trivial doses 
compared with, you know, what people might think of, you know, alcohol. Um, and I also should um, take a moment to say that, you know, for women, the effect, the beneficial effect of cannabis are less dependent upon the dose, meaning, you know, a little bit may, may very well work, but if, if a woman takes a great lot of cannabis, um, it, it may make her, um, you know, more out of it and, and, uh, and, and, and sort of less participatory, which doesn't necessarily mean that she's not consenting and it doesn't necessarily mean that she's not enjoying. Uh, and so all of those ranges of use are really, um, effective. Uh, with men though, it's a little bit more complicated in that a little bit goes a long way and, and too much really does become too much. And sort of what I usually say is, you know, it, it's kind of difficult to do the deed if your, your head is sort of off orbiting Jupiter somewhere. You know, there's a certain amount of mechanics involved that frankly, if you just forget to do them, well, it ain't going to work out too well. <laughs> you know, you described that very well and very tactfully. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is very good. Uh, Dr. Tischler, anything you want to say in conclusion? It was uh, great to talk to you again. I remember the first time we chatted, and uh, you said something that was really stuck with me, and it's changed my attitude. And I, I was ranting, I guess, against um, stoners. And you said we have to thank the stoners for keeping uh, cannabis in the forefront. And uh, I'm paraphrasing your words now and, mm-hmm. and, and keeping it in the forefront of the public discussion. And I think that's very true because I've been thinking about that a lot. And my criticism of stoners, I pulled back very much as a result of uh, that statement by you. And I think we do owe the stoners a lot for embracing cannabis we don't necessarily have to agree with the way they've embraced it but they've embraced it in order to keep it at the forefront of public attention and i believe that is something that has been beneficial to us all do you agree i do absolutely you know i think that you know, if, if the stoners of the world hadn't been, then, you know, we would have lost all contact with this plant over the last 80 or so years. Uh, so I think that they've done a lot of good keeping it in our mind and also keeping some of the lore going about how to use it, um, and its various uses. But I think, you know, the flip side is that some of that stoner lore is, you know, based on, uh, experience that isn't really borne out in science. So we, we, you know, we need to take what they have afforded us to today. And now we need to run further with that using sort of more mainstream approaches, uh, and applying more science and to some degree more regulation, um, aimed at making what we get from the cannabis plant, um, you know, accessible for people who aren't stoners, right? I mean, if you want to be a stoner, fine, absolutely. Uh, there are just so many more Americans or, or humans, uh, who can benefit from this plant who are not stoners and who are not going to kind of, um, be able to join into that, that, um, social circle, uh, that we need to be able to kind of mainstream it and, and make it both more acceptable and more accessible and more user-friendly and all of that sort of stuff. 
So yes, we owe this donors a great debt of gratitude. And, and now it's sort of on us to take what they have kept going and really move it forward. Yeah, it's very well put. Dr. Tischler, great to talk to you again. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Tischler. Thank you. And there you have it, another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. If you'd like to help us out at Cannabis Health Radio, go to our webpage, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Go to the Donate section of the webpage and make a donation, either a one-time donation or a monthly donation to help us out and help us continue bringing this information to you. Wherever you are in the world, thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to PodConnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humiston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows? Maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.